we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 2, from verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Father, we pray that you would help us to listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. Please open our hearts and our minds to understand you and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As we start tonight, I want to tell you about my older brother. He's called John. Lots of you probably don't even know I have a brother, but I do. Uh, He's four years and four days older than me. Um, And I spent much of my childhood thinking that I could catch him up if I just tried hard enough. You know, I always wanted to kind of hang around with his friends, play the games that he was playing, just join in really with whatever he was doing. I only actually realized quite a bit later that that could be quite annoying behavior. Um, He told me that later. Um, Because four years is quite a gap, isn't it? Maybe some families here know that. But my brother was and is really kind. And on the whole, he put up with me really patiently, actually. And there was one day in my life when he rescued me. I'll never forget it. I think I was about 11 years old. I just started at the big secondary school. And my brother was there, too. He'd been there for years. I quickly realized that there was a kind of unwritten rule that we didn't hang out at school. Um, it was kind of, you might get some eye contact if you were lucky passing him in the corridor, but um, I definitely wasn't going to be eating with him or hanging out with his big fifth-year friends. But there was one day I really needed him. It was lunchtime. We were, I was in the playground with some new friends. We were playing a game with a tennis ball where um, you, you kind of throw it onto the slanted roof of the toilet block, the corrugated iron, and it, it kind of bounced down in funny directions, and you tried to catch it. Um, it was more fun than, than it sounds, I promise, especially compared to school. Anyway, one fateful lunchtime, um, one of our balls got stuck on the roof in a bunch of moss, and it didn't come down. We had one other ball, and I said somewhat overconfidently that I reckoned I could dislodge it by throwing our other ball as hard as I could at the first ball. I kind of backed myself to have the necessary power and, and pinpoint accuracy to dislodge it. So I wound back my arm... I hurled the tennis ball as hard as I could, and we all heard the sickening crash of glass. Turns out I was fine on power, but the accuracy wasn't quite so good. I'd gone below the roof and straight through the toilet window. At which point, the entire playground froze. You know the kind of um, smashed plate in a restaurant kind of effect? Imagine that, but it was much worse. Most of the school were outside that time of day, And literally hundreds of eyes, therefore, turned in my direction. I think everyone was curious, who would be vandalizing the school at lunchtime? I mean, that that takes nerve. Looking back with adult eyes, or listening to that for the first time, you might not think that was that bad of a disaster, not a real crisis. But to my 11-year-old self, just turned up at secondary school, desperate to do the right thing, desperate to fit in, desperate to keep the rules, I was that kind of person... I literally felt like my entire world was caving in. My new friends all backed away, just to helpfully make it clear who threw the ball. Uh, The the kind of crowds of amused sixth years across the far side of the the playground watched on. It was they who broke the silence with their laughing at me, and I could could just feel the colour draining from my cheeks, my stomach dropping into my shoes. I I had five more years to go at the school. Kind of worst-case scenario is how am I ever going to live it down? In fact, do I have five more years at the school? I'm, uh, will they expel me for this? I knew I needed to tell someone. I knew I needed to say sorry to someone important. I was so new, I didn't even know who that important person was or where to find them. And pretty soon I could feel the tears kind of welling up. The fear, the shame, feeling absolutely trapped, thinking maybe I should just run now and never come back. Maybe that would be the best approach. At which point... My older brother entered the far corner of the playground with his mates, and he could kind of see what was going on. He could see me alone, uh, obviously in trouble, starting to well up. 
And in view of the whole school, he left his mates. And, and he walked across the whole playground and he put his arm around me and he said, it's going to be all right. He came and rescued me. And I'll never forget it. I mean, you can, you can hear it, I'll never forget it. He, he took, if you want to know the end of the story, he took me to the depths he had. I blubbered. In the end, I wasn't expelled. It was an accident. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because that is a tiny echo. It's a tiny, tiny echo of what the Lord Jesus has done for you if you're a Christian here tonight. Last week, we heard in Hebrews 2 that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. Let's have a look on page 1002, verse 11, halfway through. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. See, I actually have two older brothers who've rescued me. There's my older brother, John, four years, four days, who rescued me from that self-induced crisis at school, the, the, the crisis of fear and shame and broken glass when I was 11 years old. I only had myself to blame, and he came and bailed me out. It cost his reputation. But then I have another older brother, a much bigger older brother, a much older older brother, my older brother Jesus, who, as we're going to see in our passage, crossed a much, much bigger divide. More than just four years, four days, more than just the length of a school playground, an older brother who came to rescue us from a crisis of our own making, a crisis far more serious than a broken window, the crisis of sin and impending death. Now let me say that knowing the Lord Jesus, being a brother or sister of the Lord Jesus, there's just nothing like it in this world. There's nothing like having him put his arm around you and say, it's actually going to be okay. It's why we want to invite people along to church. It's why if you're here and you don't yet follow Jesus, we'd love you to. This is, this is what you're missing. He's absolutely wonderful. Let's get into our passage to see that in more detail. Um, so uh, you'll see an outline on the back of the server sheet. <clears throat> and this is a great passage to be studying Advent. This is actually, I think, one of the clearest places in the Bible that explains Advent, explains why Jesus had to come and be born as a baby in the manger. Um, so let me read from verse 14 where we're starting. <clears throat> Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. Last week, Scott was helping us think about this extraordinary solidarity that Jesus has with us. And the more you know about who God the Son is, God the Son that Hebrews 1 and 2 has been talking about, this extraordinary um, eternal being, the second person of the triune God, stepped down below the angels that he had made, stepped down to take on humanity, to take on human nature, to take on flesh and blood, as it's described here. He himself, likewise, partook of the same things. He chose to step onto the playground. He chose to become a human being so he could step into the playground. Absolutely extraordinary. 
But I want us to notice in verse 14 the reason we're given for why he took on flesh and blood, why he stepped into the playground, because actually it was something far more significant than just coming to put an arm around us. He didn't just come to tell us everything's all right. So why did God the Son become a human being? One answer, I don't know if a friend asks you that, I kind of don't get this Christmas thing, like why did God want to become a baby? What on earth is going on there? Um, we, we might be used to the answer that says, well, um, as a song puts it that we sometimes sing, uh, God wanted to reveal your glory, so Jesus, you came down. He wanted to reveal your glory, so Jesus, you came down. And there is some truth in that. We'll know that from John's gospel. We'll hear that in our carol services a lot, that uh, Jesus, the word of God, came down, the word made flesh, to make God known. So there's real truth in that, that by stepping onto the, this earth, um, we do see uh, God very clearly in the Lord Jesus. He does reveal God like no one else. He's, he's an exact imprint of God's nature, a light shining in the darkness, the climax of God speaking. Um, but actually, that's not the reason we're given here. It's not even the main reason, I think, in the Bible for why Jesus became a baby at Christmas, why he took on human flesh, why he had to have blood vessels and ankles, hands, a ribcage. Just look at the verse again, verse 14, for the answer. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Here's the reason. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus took on our human nature to be like us, yes, but not just to show us God, but to die for us. A very specific purpose why he took on a body. Let me put it another way. The reasons why he needed ankles was so they could be nailed to a cross. The reason why he needed hands the reason why he needed a rib cage, it wasn't just for lungs so he could talk to us, it was so that a Roman spear could go through his side for us. The eternal son took on human flesh in order to die in our place. He, he came to rescue us. It's absolutely extraordinary. I've been surprised actually this week um, uh, at, at how strongly I still feel about the condescension of my brother John on that day. Um, I was actually, when I was writing the talk, I was, I was more blubbery than I am up here. It's just amazing that he would, he would in that moment, he just didn't, didn't value his reputation at school above helping me. Just loved me, saw me in trouble, came to bail me out. And the Lord Jesus wasn't just kind of walking across a playground. It wasn't just potentially being laughed at by his mates for a short time. The Lord Jesus, the eternal son, stepped into the creation he made. He took on a human nature, which meant he was born below the angels. The angels that we saw in chapter one were made to worship him, made by him, for him. He took on flesh and blood. And again, not just to put an arm around us, but to stretch out his arms on a cruel Roman cross, because his death was the one way we could be rescued. Now, you'll see on the outline, in point three, we're going to think about a bit more about how this works. I realize you might think, well, that's a strange way to rescue. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to bleed? What's going on there? We'll get to that in point three. 
But that's our first point. Jesus took on human flesh and blood so that he could die. Or to put it another way, Christmas happens so that Easter can happen. The crib is part of the plan for the cross. And you see that even in the nativity stories in the Gospels. It's why some of his birthday gifts from the wise men are funeral gifts, spices, myrrh. But point two, before we get to why he had to die, point two, the effect of Jesus' death, the reason why Jesus bothered was to set us free from the enslaving fear of death. Just look at how verse 14 carries on. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and, listen to this, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think verse 15 is such a profound description of the human condition. I don't know about you, I don't know whether you'd recognize that, um, if you're just looking in on Christian things. It's an amazing reminder of the unique freedom Jesus can bring and the, the profoundly true reality that actually we are enslaved by a fear of death. I think different cultures handle the fear of death differently. So some will, will kind of handle the fear by fixating on it, maybe superstitions or occultic practices, an attempt to kind of control it or contact those beyond it. Other cultures, and I guess lots of us would be more familiar with these kind of approaches, we do our absolute best to ignore it, to pretend it's not there, to airbrush it out of polite discourse, or to bury it under the numbing effect of substance abuse, or to bury it under the, the noise of busyness and being super productive, or to distract ourselves from it with entertainment and leisure and accumulating stuff, or possibly to sentimentalize it as if it's not a big thing, as if it's not serious, just looking down from the stars, just moving into the next room. But of course, the reality is death can't be avoided forever for anyone, and it is real, and it is serious. Most of us who've experienced the death of loved ones, and there are a number here who've um, experienced this in recent months and years, we recognize it's, it's a kind of terrible intrusion on this world. It, it, it feels awful. It, it's unnatural. And without Jesus' death, it's not a happy transition from one room to another. Actually, it's rightly terrifying. You see, when you, when you listen to my story earlier about my kind of 11-year-old worries about smashing a school window, I guess you may have sat there and thought, oh, is that it? <laughs> I thought it was going to be like a, a serious crisis you were rescued from. And objectively, you would be right. I mean, my, in my own kind of little school kid heart, it was a big deal with my own little kind of pharisaical, must always do the right thing. Um, just as background to that, in my primary school, I used to go around... Um, connecting up the chains that protected the flower beds. That's how kind of eager to please I was. I know, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, and in that context, it felt like it was a really big thing when I smashed a toilet window. Um, but actually, it turned out, even the vice um, principal didn't think it was that big. Apparently, they were going to redo the toilet block anyway, so it didn't matter. 
Actually, it's the other way around with death. Lots of us spend our time saying it's, it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. Let's, let's not talk about it. But actually, it really is a big deal. The eternal son wouldn't have stepped down into his creation if it wasn't a big deal, if we didn't really need a rescue. It is an objective reality, a fearsome reality, uh, whether we feel the terror or not at this particular moment in life, we have smashed through God's standards. We haven't treated him the way he wants. We haven't treated others the way he wants. We haven't treated his world the way he wants. And unlike my misguided and accidental bull throw, often we know what we're doing. We're culpable because we're deliberately choosing our way, not God's way. And so there is this moment of reckoning coming where we're called to account by our maker. Hebrews later um, says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And verse 14 describes death as like the devil's secret weapon or kind of the the one powerful weapon the devil has. Just look at verse 14 again. Um, Through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those. Um, So let's just unpack what's going on there. Um, When the Bible speaks of the devil, that's the spiritual opponent of God and humanity. Ever since Genesis 3 and the Garden of Eden, the devil has been successfully tempting humanity to reject God's rule and then trapping them in the consequences, the enslaving consequences of that. And his most powerful weapon is the fear of death because, concentrate on this bit, God himself promised humanity that if we rejected God, the penalty would be death. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die, is how Genesis puts it. And we have, both collectively and individually, we have rejected God's standards. We smashed through them. And so we are trapped by death. It's like the devil holds all the cards. He tricked us into disobeying God. He promised, oh, you'll get loads more life, much better life without God. And then he turns around and says, well, actually, the wages of sin are death. Now you're in trouble. And uh, there's real power in that because God made a rock-solid promise, if you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. God's promise backs the power of death. He can't just let people off and say, well, it doesn't really matter. Let's forget about it. In other other words, the devil can appeal to God to keep the bars of death row firmly closed until our older brother got involved. Verse 14 again. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, that's his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Or to put it another way, Christians are the freest people on the planet. No, it doesn't always feel like that, and I know that certainly that wouldn't be the impression people have of Christianity, but if we've been released from the greatest fear there is, the greatest enslavement, the one thing no one can get out of that will get them in the end... Well, well, then we really are free. Now, of course, this is not to say that Christians kind of have no worries about the process of dying. 
We prayed for that church earlier where 14 people lost their lives. I'm sure that was a terrifying time. A number in our church family are going through the pain of sickness and frailty. It's not that we suddenly say, oh no, this is not going to hurt. But actually, the most scary thing, according to the Bible, is facing a holy judge. It's the moment after our death. And on that count, Christians are completely secure because our older brother has faced it for us. He puts his nail-pierced hands around our shoulder and says, it's going to be okay. And one of the things that means for a church community, we we thought this morning about how Jesus came not to congratulate good people, but to forgive bad people, people like us, sinful people. And we thought a bit, Robin helped us think, what, what, does that, what kind of culture does that make? If we can all admit, actually, I'm not as righteous as I pretend to be. Same with this, actually. Whereas so many in our culture are spending their lives and money and energy running away, running scared of death, actually, we can be a family, a community, where we can talk about it, where we can care for those who are dying, not ignore them, where we can prepare wills and funerals, where we can attend funerals of others and grieve with real hope. We don't have to join the enslavement of whatever it is that gets chased, the busyness, the escapism, the wealth, the health, the entertainment, the travel, the fame. We don't have to chase whatever we can to slow down the inexorable chase of death. Sometimes it takes a long time for that fear to catch up with people. Sometimes it's only in the latter stages, kind of lying on the hospital bed at the end, where you actually look back on life and suddenly realize there's regret there. I need forgiveness. Where can I find it? Sometimes it, there's a lot of distraction before someone hits that point. But actually, as Christians, we can talk about that. We can look at our past with open eyes and say, thank you so much, Jesus, my older brother, for rescuing me from myself. Just give one example of the kind of freedom that a Christian has. I had the privilege of, of being with someone from this church family when they're um, just coming to the point of, of dying the last few days of their life. I'll never forget one of the things that um, this dear sister was saying. She barely had breath to speak, but you could just hear her muttering uh, on her breath were these words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by his wounds you've been healed. By his wounds I've been healed. It's amazing. And just real confidence, real assurance in the face of what, for the rest of us watching on, was a scary time, a sad time. It's just a wonderful thing when you know your older brother's come to rescue you. That's our second point. Jesus took on human flesh and blood so he could die to set us free from the enslaving fear of death. We were truly stuck in a mess of our own making and he came to rescue us and set us free. But finally, our third point, how exactly does Jesus dying on a cross, bleeding on a Roman cross, how exactly does that free us from the fear of death? So that 
verse that our dear sister was saying, by his wounds you have been healed. How, how does that work? Like, why is it that way? Well, this is, um, this is our third point in verses 16 to 17. I guess if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is a fairly strange idea, that one man being kind of brutally executed by the Romans after a sham trial 2,000 years ago could actually have some spiritual benefit to us now. This is what verse 17 is explaining. This is point three, verse 17. Let me read it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, this language is all drawing on the Old Testament. God gave Jesus a long introduction in the Old Testament scriptures to set up some of the categories we'd need to understand his work for us. And so the category of high priest here is drawn from um, the Old Testament. This idea of making propitiation for sins. Now the idea of a high priest is, is a mediator. Someone who stands between a holy God and a sinful people and helps make things right. So in Israel there were priests who worked in the temple They kept themselves especially ritually clean and pure so that they could approach God and make sacrifices to atone for or cover over or pay for the sins of the people. And Jesus here is described in those terms as our mediator, our high priest, standing between us and a holy God, um, making peace by, as we'll see, offering himself his death on the cross as a sacrifice. But before we get to that sacrifice, just notice the, the description he's given, those two words, that he might become, verse 17, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus is merciful and faithful. I've put a little diagram on the handout, you'll see. Um, Jesus is a merciful priest in that he can offer us mercy. That is, he enables us to be treated not as we deserve, not to face the death that we deserve. So he's merciful, but he's also faithful. I think fundamentally here, faithful to God, which is actually a really wonderful and important thing. You see, when you look through the, the priests in the Old Testament, um, a number of them were good at kind of sympathizing with and empathizing with sinful people. Some of them showed mercy because they didn't really care. They didn't actually care about God's standards. It was like, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. Yeah, no, one won't go notice. That's fine, that's fine. Um, Think of Eli's sons um, who dragged the bar so low down that everyone could be let off. The problem was it was a complete dereliction of their duty to be faithful to God, to actually protect the purity of the temple and God's people. And in the end, God stopped listening to them. So it's no good if your priest is just merciful. You need a faithful priest who is merciful. And Jesus is the faithful one He's utterly obedient to God. He's the righteous son. He always lives the way God says, always holy in his thoughts and his words and his deeds. There is a bit of a question. How can those two things fit together? As in, how can he be faithful to God, maintaining God's standards, maintaining utter purity, and at the same time exercise mercy, um, put out his hand of mercy to sinful people? It's a conundrum the Bible kind of raises again and again and again before Jesus comes. Basically, how can a holy God forgive sinful people without compromising his standards? What's going to happen to justice if God just says, oh, do you know what? 
I don't actually care this week. I'll let you off. And the answer to that is this word propitiation, or part of the answer is this word propitiation. Um, So in the Old Testament um, temple system, uh, animals would be sacrificed, and, and symbolically, the sins of the people would be confessed on the head of the animal. Um, it was a picture of how God would forgive his people by having a substitute die. Because remember the promise? You will surely die. Death has to be paid. And just turn with me, keep a finger in Hebrews 10, but just turn on to Hebrews chapter 10. Sorry, keep a, a finger in Hebrews 2 and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. So the Old Testament sacrificial system of animals taking our place, it taught the principle that God's anger could, on sin could be taken by another. But actually, look at chapter 10, verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4 of Hebrews. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Which actually, if you think about it, is right. The promise to humanity was, if you sin, you will surely die. It is not the same if an animal dies in my place. And so chapter 10 carries on. Therefore Christ had to come into the world. We won't read the whole thing. Um, But just have a look at verse 10. By that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That's the animal sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down by the right hand of God. And verse 14, by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Flip back with me to Hebrews 2. That's why Hebrews 2 verse 17 makes such a big deal of Jesus actually being like us. He actually had to take on humanity, become a human being. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become this merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, he had to come and live the life I should have and die the death I deserved. And that really deals with God's anger at our sin. It really satisfies justice. It keeps God's promise. And if you want to know how scary it is facing God's wrath, well, just watch Jesus praying the night before the cross in Gethsemane. Now, how should we respond to this extraordinary picture of our older brother? Jesus took on human flesh and blood so that he could die for us. He stepped in to this world. He stepped under the angels he made so that he could free us from the enslaving fear of death by taking God's wrath at our sin upon himself. Sometimes people will say or think to themselves, God can't be angry. That doesn't sound right. Or, 
Death is too harsh a punishment for sin. That doesn't sound right. But then the Lord Jesus would not have had to come. I take it he knows better than us. Take it in his love. He saw that was the way to rescue us. And the application of all of this as we come in to to land and close is to hold on to Jesus Christ. Hebrews, across this whole series of of four talks in Hebrews 1 to 2, Hebrews has been encouraging us to consider Jesus. Just look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And verse 6. Um, hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, when you stand back and think how amazing Jesus is, if, if your heart has got even a glimpse of that tonight, if you're a Christian here, you might be thinking, well, why would anyone ever walk away from Jesus? I'm always grateful to my older brothers. I look back to that pretty, pretty mini rescue. How could anyone ever be tempted to walk, about, around, walk away from Jesus? But this church family were getting stick for their public association with Jesus. They were losing money. Um, Some were being imprisoned. They were being ridiculed, attacked. If those people um, who died in that church hadn't gone to church or hadn't associated themselves with Jesus, well, maybe they would have been okay. The pressure of persecution can mean There's a temptation to just drift away from this Jesus, the unique Jesus, the Jesus who only his death will save, and just retreat to a slightly kind of more uh, more appealing, less controversial form of religion. But as we close, three quick reasons why it's worth sticking with Jesus. Hopefully it's obvious from what we've said, but I'll just fire them out quickly. First off, Jesus can help you. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Because Jesus himself has suffered when tempting, tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has been through the mill as a human being. He knows what it's like to fight sin when you're exhausted, to fight sin when you're hungry, to fight sin when you're battling desires, when you're tempted to take an easy way out. He knows what it's like to put himself before, to have the temptation to put himself before God and before others. He knows how it feels. And the wonderful thing is, unlike the failed prophets and priests of the Old Testament or the weak human leaders of churches today, Jesus has never given in, never crumpled under that temptation. And so he really can Help us. As I look out in your faces, I don't know some of the private battles that are going on. But whatever you're going through, Jesus can help you, strengthen you, comfort you, reassure you, because he's one full and total forgiveness. He really does put an arm around us and say, it's going to be okay. That's the first application Consider Jesus, he really can help you. Why would you drift away from him? Who else can? Second implication, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. We won't go through them in detail. Um, But Jesus deserves the glory. He's compared to Moses. Just look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
I've got two older brothers, I love them both. But the older, older brother made my older brother. Amazing. He's not just a wonderful person to follow within creation. He is the creator of all. So why would you go somewhere else in the religious supermarket? It's his supermarket. He made this universe. He's the eternal son. And then finally, um, to, to close where we began the series, uh, we, we really should trust Jesus' words. Just look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, and here's the speaking language, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we're his house indeed if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So we end where we began sticking with the words of Jesus. It's what chapter 1 encouraged us to do. It's what chapter 2 is now encouraging us to do in the start of chapter 3. And I think it's, the motivation is both, I wouldn't dare walk away from Jesus, the eternal son, and I wouldn't want to. Just look what he did for me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our hearts can only begin to have a glimpse of your majesty and the majesty of your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus. But we thank you so much that he became like us in every way, that he was tempted and suffered and died in our place. We pray for any here who are not free from the slavery of sin and death, for whom the fear of death is a, a, a live fear. We pray that you would help them to know that there is real comfort available. And for those of us who do know you and have trusted the Lord Jesus, please would you help us keep trusting him right to the end. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.